Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. Jessica Brody is the author of Save the Cat Writes a Novel, a follow-up to the best-selling screenwriting guide by Blake Snyder. She's also written more than 17 novels for teens, tweens, and adults. Her books have been translated and published in over 23 countries, and two are in development as major motion pictures. Jessica has clearly learned a lot about telling stories and writing novels that pay off, so I was excited to have her on the show to talk about her own process and inner journey. Jessica Brody, welcome to The Fearless Storyteller. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, it's my pleasure. Um, For those who may not know what you're up to, um, chances are some authors who are paying attention might, but as far as songwriters and screenwriters go, um, what do you want to share about yourself? Well, that's a good question. (laughs) Um, I'm an author. I write novels mostly for teens and tweens, um, but I'm also a story coach and writing instructor. Hmm. Um, So I've written over 20 novels. And I recently, in the last year, uh, released a book specifically for novelists called Save the Cat Writes a Novel. And it's a structure guide uh, mm-hmm. for novelists to learn how to structure their uh, stories. Yeah. And I imagine that must be like exciting because Save the Cat is like kind of a famous entity. And I'm, and I'm curious how you became attached to the brand and, and took it from a screenwriting course to something for novelists uh yeah a lot of people ask me that and it's funny because the save the cat brand it's sort of i always say it's like a blessing and a curse because Mm. you know people who are familiar with the brand already they're like oh that's so cool you wrote a novel guide like how'd you do that and Mm. then there's people out there who are like save the what like is this about like rescuing cats from shelters right Right. It's a very in, it's a very insider term. It is, it is. And it's sort of, um, it's got a really catchy name that you remember, but if you don't, if you don't know it, you're just sort of like, what? So there's been a really interesting process since we released the book of sort of meeting like one half of the, of the population that's like, that's so cool. And the other half are like, what is Save the Cat? And you kind of have to educate. Um, but basically, yeah, it's, as you said, it used to be, or it started out as a screenwriting guide. So um, a screenwriter named Blake Snyder wrote the original book called Save the Cat, the last book on screenwriting you'll ever need. Mm. And uh, he, what he set out to do is he set out to kind of codify story. And um, he studied just, you know, tons and tons of movies. And he found that there was this underlying code, like I, I call it the storytelling code. He mm. found there's this sort of underlying template or pattern to all of them. So they were all sort of hitting the same story beats or plot points. And he mm. created uh, a blueprint out of that. And it's called the Save the Cat Beat Sheet. Mm. Um, and it has 15 beats. And I found this magic book when I was trying to sell my first novel and failing miserably. I was getting rejected everywhere. Mm. Um, and so a screenwriter friend actually gave me the book and I, it really spoke to me. I, I understood story on a level I'd never understood it before. And I kind of set out to revise the manuscript I was trying to sell using this 15 beat template. And 
I ended up getting an agent for that book and I ended up mm-hmm. selling that book to a major publisher. Wow. And since then I've sold more than 20 novels to publishers like Simon Schuster, Random House, Macmillan. Right. And I kind so, of like owe it all to the method. Yeah. That's, that's like really quick feedback when you try <laughs> something or find your book version of a mentor. Yeah, yeah. It just really clicked with me. And I think I just didn't really understand the, the mechanics of story before mm-hmm. I found it. Um, so I'd been using it for many, many years and I started to blog about how I use the method. And, Mm. um, so Blake Snyder died in 2009, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. but there's a really great group of people who keep his, his legacy alive and they run savethecat.com and they run, you know, seminars and things like that. And they, um, they have a really great blog and they asked if I would, you know, guest blog for them. And I said, yes. And then from there they asked if I would teach the method to novelists. Um, and I said, yes. And then kind of from there, it was, we were getting really great feedback from novelists saying, mm. yeah, this, this really works for novels too. Um, so from there, we, uh, we decided to do a book um, where I basically teach novelists how to use the method and I adapt the method for novelists. Cool. And like, what did that like bring up for you to like, if anything, to like represent a, that brand? I mean, I remember when I first got the email mm. from the like the very first time they reached out to me and said, we saw your blog about how you used Save the Cat to write your novel, The Karma Club. And um, would you be willing to post that on our site? And I remember it was sort of like I had like a fangirl moment, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, you know, it was like being contacted by your idol and uh, and asking if, you know, you would do something with them. And I was so thrilled. And um, so, of course, I said yes. And then it just kind of continued from there. And, you know, when the book came out, I have to say it was nerve wracking. Like I loved writing the book. I had a, I had a great time, but there was always this fear in the back of my mind that I'm like, you know, are people going to respond to this book? Is it going to be helpful? Like, honestly, my biggest fear, because what I do in the book is I analyze um, ton, like at least 30 different novels using this method. So right. the thing about the method is it's not new. It's basically just codifying what already exists. Mm-hmm. So I've studied books as old as like Austin and Dickens, and I'm finding the fifth, I find the 15 beats in there. So it's sort right. of just this, you know, storytelling template that's existed for much longer than we have. Um, and I was, my, my big obsession was that people were going to criticize my analysis of like Jane Austen. Mm. I was like, people are going to read this book and go, she doesn't know Jane Austen. <laughs> um, and and like, no one has said that yet. So th- thankfully, I mean, maybe people are saying it, but not to my face. Um, <laughs> but mostly it's been really, really great feedback. People are finding it helpful and, um, you know, and it's it's just been really rewarding. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Well, congratulations on that. And so, and so you call this I've heard you say that you call this blueprint also a transformation machine. Mm-hmm. And what, is, what does that mean? Um, so, you know, all stories are about transformation. Like there's really no point in writing a story unless someone changes. Um, mm. Someone has some sort of transformative journey. And so we call the beat sheet the, the, the transformation machine because essentially you put a hero into it. Like you, you start out with a very flawed hero mm. who has, you know, some kind of a really big core flaw. That's something that's really keeping them down in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they come out the other end, uh, having conquered that specific flaw. So 
so I say it, the, the beat sheet is a transformation machine that takes a flawed hero and transforms them into someone who's a little bit less flawed. Mm. Um, so it takes imperfect heroes and makes them a little bit more perfect. Right. And you've been using this for your 20 plus novels. Yeah. And, and I'm curious if you've noticed, like, do you, do you as a storyteller have like this common theme or thread running through them or this transformational flavor that that you find yourself putting your characters through i yeah i mean i think i think any story worth telling has a transformative element so Mm. all of my all of my heroes they they get transformed by the books and i i always say that you know when you set out to write a story there should be this perfect marriage between the hero and the plot, like why this hero and this plot? Mm-hmm. And, and the answer should be because this is the plot that's going to transform this hero. Mm-hmm. So if you, you know, if your plot is not, is not meant for that hero and it's not meant to transform them, then the story is going to, the story is going to feel lacking in some way. So you got to make sure that the, that that specific plot is for that specific hero, sort of like this happy union. Um, so that's one of the first things that I always sit down to figure out is, you know, I usually come up with the concept first, like mm-hmm. the premise. Um, for example, I'm writing a book right now called I Speak Boy, and okay. it's a tween book, middle grade. So for like 10 and up, 10, 10 to 14 year olds. And um, it's about a girl who discovers a magic app on her phone that translates boys' thoughts, like basically what boys <laughs> are saying versus what they're thinking. Uh-huh. Um, so it's sort of like a Google app, Google Translate app, but it's for, you know, boy language. That's great. Um, it's cute. It's really fun. But then the first question I asked myself is like, okay, what character needs this story? Mm. And, you know, I discovered, I, in my searching and, and research, I decided that it's a character who sort of is confused by boys, but is also kind of um, very controlling. Like she likes to kind of understand everything around her and she wants to get explanations about everything. Um, and also it's a character who um uh, who is obsessed with her phone mm. so and she she kind of can't have face-to-face contact she has to like she relies on her phone for all her communication and so you know through this journey she discovers that you know an app is not necessarily a replacement for face-to-face contact mm. she discovers that some things you're not going to understand um there's going to be some mysteries that are still left in life regardless of whether you have magic or not mm. um and you know things like that so she definitely gets transformed by this plot and that's awesome and how like how much of that has an element of you in it like the lessons that you've learned and like values or or transformations you've had that's a great question. I find that a lot of my characters um, share some flaws with me. Um, I think it's only natural. I try really hard, you know, when you when you get to like novel number twenty, you know, you you sort of start to run out of <laughs> really good flaws. You've mm-hmm. like used you've used a lot of them, um, but I find that like a lot of my characters tend to be control freaks, which mm-hmm. I'm definitely a control freak. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of my characters have the less have to learn a lesson about letting go about you know, whether it's letting go of control, letting go of um, sort of an obsession to know something or understand something. Mm. Um, I find, yeah, so there's a couple things that that come up over and over and I'm like, hmm, 
<laughs> that makes sense because <laughs> that's something that I struggle with. Right. And you've probably had some lessons and epiphanies along the way. I imagine yep, yep. that would that yeah. would be really powerful to share with with young people and young yeah. readers. Or it's any also it's people. also really fun to kind of come up with, you know, flaws that have nothing that you do not struggle with yeah. and kind of put yourself in the shoes of a character who's completely unlike you. And mm. it, I think it creates a lot of empathy. Um, and it just is a, is a fun sort of thought experiment. Yeah. I really enjoy doing that with, with my villains. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what for you, for you, you've, you've written one nonfiction book. I don't know if you're working on more or plan to, but what's, is there any mindset difference for writing fiction and nonfiction for you? Um, yeah, it, it, there's, it's a way different animal. Um, I, I would like to write more nonfiction. I, I, I have some things in the works that I can't talk about quite yet, but um, mm. hopefully some news will be announced soon. Um, cool. But it's, you know, when I set out to write the nonfiction, um, I kind of thought it was going to be the same in terms of, my headspace and the writing process and the creativity, but it's completely different. It's, mm. I find that um, I write fiction better in the mornings when I'm sort of the freshest and I write nonfiction better in the afternoons, mm -hmm. um, which is sort of an odd discovery. Um, I find that I can write nonfiction, I think for longer than I can write fiction because with fiction, you're sort of, you're having to create everything as this is, I'm speaking about drafting, not necessarily mm -hmm. revising, but you're having like everything that's coming out is like brand new and it has to be created by you mm. versus when you're writing nonfiction, you sort of have all of these thoughts already. And you know, you're, you're sort of just explaining something that already exists in your head. Mm. So I think it's less exhausting. And, and for me, I can go longer um, doing it because it's not, it, I'm not like using every ounce of creativity in my brain. That's interesting. And so you must, you must have different rituals for that then I would imagine for writing in the morning versus yeah. afternoon writing. I mean, my rituals, I'm very strict about uh, focus management, which means um, I don't allow any electronics to be on or blinking or dinging around me. You know, I, I put my phone in another room when I write, regardless of what I'm writing. Mm -hmm. um, I'm very strict about just all day in, in my daily life is keeping notifications off my phone, like keeping anything from just sort of pinging into my life. I yeah. find that that's sort of a real distraction focus breaker, even if you're not working on something, mm. it's just sort of training our brains to like ping back and forth between things, um, which makes it harder for us to focus. So I'm, I'm pretty strict about those kinds of things regardless. Um, in terms of the processes differing from morning to afternoon, not, not necessarily. It's more about, I guess, the headspace I, I put myself in um, when I sit down. Mm, can you say more about that? Um, I, when, you're, when I'm writing fiction, it's, you know, I have to put myself, I have to kind of insert myself into the story mm. and think about the, the life of the character and what, what they're feeling right at this moment. So you're sort of almost... Like putting yourself into someone else's life, and right, so it's like right. a yeah mental journey. Versus when I sit down to write nonfiction, it's more about okay, how am I going to best describe or explain or analyze what I'm you know what this chapter is about. Hmm. And so you're you've been doing this a long time. Um, 
the writing journey. And, and I'm curious what you still enjoy about it and maybe what you struggle with still so that people who are early on maybe don't feel discouraged. Um, I, I still enjoy the rush of falling into a story. Mm. So I think Stephen King described it really well in his book, Misery, how the character falls into the page, like they get sucked into the page. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I still love that. I actually, I, it doesn't happen all the time. And, it, and I tell people don't expect it to happen every day because you'll never finish a book. Cause if you're always waiting to get those bursts of, of just like blissful in, inspiration, you will never finish a project because mm. those are very few and far between. Mm. Um, like this morning I got one and it was great. Like I, you, I, I now can recognize it like almost instantly. I know like, okay, I'm in it. Like, this is great. And I just, I get happy and I just write it out and then, you know, eventually it ends. And then the next day it's probably not going to come back. (laughs) Um, But so I think I still, I still love that. Um, In terms of what I, what I struggle with, um, I think there's just always a fear of originality you know, when you're writing this many books is like, are you repeating the same things? Are you saying things the same way? Um, I get frustrated about every time I write like a teen novel and I have to write sort of like a romance scene, like a kiss or, or just like a, you know, uh, <laughs> like a romantic look between people. I'm like, how many times can I, how many different ways can I say they kissed um, or they looked at each other across a room? So I think I get a little bit like I struggle with that. Like, how do I continue to reinvent? Right. So it sounds like it's, it sounds like you're almost falling out of your own process. Like a reader falls out of a book sometimes because, because you're getting in that analytical space. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's something I, I, I think all writers do, but I warn people to try to, you know, shut off your inner critic. Don't Mm. just write it and fix it later. And, you know, but we all struggle with that. We all struggle with like, Oh my God, it's not good enough. Right. And so that's, you know, we're we're just kind of glossing over it, but that's a big skill to be able to, or tool to be able to turn off the inner critic. Like, is there something that you've found is easy to help others with or teach others about that? I mean, I have a, I have some tools. It it is, it's a skill. It's, it's a muscle that you have to, you have to work. Um, And it's going to feel really it's going to feel really awkward and hard at first. Um, so my, my big thing is, you know, let yourself write badly. Like that mm. is the only way you're going to finish your book is if you allow yourself to just suck and, mm. and just write absolute crap. Um, because if you start to obsess over things being good, um, you don't move forward. You're constantly editing the same thing over and over. Um, so a lot of times, you know, you just have to move past those like there'll be there'll be times when you're like I love what I just wrote mm-hmm. and there'll be times when you're like this is the worst writing in the history of writing and but you have to move past that part um because the state of mind that you're in at the time you're writing it is not the state of mind required to fix it the right. state of mind required to fix it is is sort of like I call it future you so there's present you there's past you and there's future you right so present <laughs> you is drafting right now and present you's only job is to you know get words down on the page. Unfortunately, like present you has no idea what the story looks like. They they can have a you know, they can think they know. They can outline to death, and they can have sort of an idea of what they want it to look like. Right. But they never will have a full picture. They'll always be looking you know just like five feet ahead. Future you 
knows exactly what the book is because they have seen the entire thing. They have all of the pages in front of them. So they have a lot more, um, they have a lot more capacity to actually fix stuff because they know where the story went from then on. Um, So my big thing is like, you kind of have to separate those two people in your mind and you have to let present you do their job and future you do their job. And when you try to do both, it just gets really complicated and messy. (laughs) Yeah, I could see that. I, I know I, I've found this rhythm that I can write a new scene, write new words. And when, if I just let go and go for a walk afterwards or do whatever I'm doing, chores or errands, that my brain's going to start chewing on it and asking questions. Like, Mm -hmm. did did I leave it? Did I create an open loop or did I, do I have a story problem with what I just wrote? Did I not answer a question? Like my brain's just going to trickle out these things for me to examine later. Yeah, exactly. And your brain is like, Matt, your brain is so magic. You know, your brain has this capacity of fixing all problems, but you have to give it the space to do that. And when you try to force it to do it, it it goes on strike. Um, (laughs) But when you, like what you just said is I tell people this all the time, go for a walk, wash dishes, color in a coloring book. Like don't turn on a TV, you know, when you're stuck. Don't yeah. turn on a TV. Don't look at the internet. Don't don't try to distract yourself with other thoughts because mm. that's the de- like that's to the detriment. Your brain is like, oh, okay, we're doing this now. I'm going to stop working on that story. But if you can find something that's active and yet sort of mindless, um, mm. your brain is you know, will work its magic in the background, and it will. I've I've had like one of the biggest epiphanies I ever had in any of my books happened when I was waiting in a drive-through of an In-N-Out. <laughs> um, is a burger place in the West Coast. And <laughs> I remember I was sitting in the drive-thru and I wasn't thinking about the book. I was just, I was stuck. I was like, it was, deadline was like looming and right. I was really stressed. And I'm like, I have to go eat something. So I went to the drive-thru and I'm sitting in the drive-thru and all of a sudden it literally dropped into my head, the answer. Mm. And by the time I, you know, picked up my fries, they were like, I was like, ah, I have it. <laughs> the <next laughs> person giving me the fries is very scared. Um, <laughs> but it's like, you don't, you can't force those things. You have to just do something and let your brain work it out. Right. So, well, so you're, you're not forcing things, but maybe your way of forcing things is to create space exactly. in a way that's, yeah. that you know is going to be for your benefit rather than your detriment. It's, yeah. It's allowing the things to happen. So how did you learn that lesson? Like, how did you learn to do that? Um, I mean, that part, that was, that was a while ago that that drive-through story happened. So that was sort of a big lesson for me. Yeah. Um, was kind of like, wow, I wasn't even trying. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if there was like an aha moment when I thought, oh, this is, this is the secret of life. <laughs> so give yourself space. I think mm-hmm. it's just something I've discovered over the years of okay. being stuck on a lot of plot problems and having the answer come to me in the oddest of places. Well, good. So it's been a while. So maybe, maybe you can answer this question better. Like, have you noticed anything shift with your relationship with writing and deadlines since you had that kind of epiphany? Um, I think my, the only thing that's really shifted. So I tell people it never gets easier. Like, you know, people think, oh, by your fifth novel, you'll, you'll have figured it out. I, I don't think so. Personally, I don't think so. Um, I, I sort of joke that every time you sit down to write a novel, you have to remember, you have to kind of learn how to write a novel. 
Mm. Um, because every story is going to be different and every story is going to give you different challenges. You know, like the book I'm working on now, I've rewritten the first 30 pages like a couple times and I'm going, wait a minute. I'm never, the 30 pages are never problematic. Those are always the easiest pages for me. Mm. Um, so it's really baffling and every book has those challenges. Um, so it never gets easier, but what happens is you, you build up confidence that you can do it Mm. and you build up trust in that future you, you know, when, when you're sort of writing your first book and you're struggling with that, I can't move on until this is, you know, perfect. Um, or you, or you're like, I'm going to give up because this one part's not working. Um, you don't yet have faith that future you can do their job. But when you've, when future you has revised 20 novels, you're like, oh, future you is pretty good. So, you know, they're, they're pretty skilled. So you just build up more confidence in yourself and mm. your ability to, your trust that that's going to work itself out eventually. Um, but it's a really hard thing to do is to, is to trust in the future and the, and your ability to do that later. Yeah. I really like that. Um, future you trust in <laughs> right. the future you, maybe that's the next book. Jessica. Yeah, maybe that's, I like it. Trust yeah. in the future you. Yeah. So, so you've been co-writing a little bit as well, perhaps, mm-hmm. or you did recently. And I'm curious, like what that experience was like for you. Oh, it's so fun. I, so I, I'm co-writing a trilogy with my best friend. Um, her name is Joanne Rendell. She previously wrote three adult fiction titles. Um, so this is her first time writing for teens. We, so the first book is called Sky Without Stars. It came out in March of 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, the whole trilogy is a sci-fi retelling of Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. So mm we like to call it lames in space. <laughs> it's sort of a space opera. And then there's sort of this whole, you know, lames story. And then there's also um, kind of a retelling of the French revolution built in. So there's a lot of things happening, but we had so much fun doing it. Um, and the way we, the way we found that we work best together is I think, so when you're thinking about co-writing, mm-hmm. I think the key is, you know, you really have to, um, well, you have to find the right partner. You know, you have to find someone that you really love working with. But also, I think what we're both really good at is just putting our egos aside. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a rule that if one of us doesn't like something, it has to change. Instead of like fighting for, oh no, this is good. You just don't understand. Mm-hmm. If someone is not comfortable or does not like that, it, even just down to the word, like we will we will go over words, and somebody will say, no, I don't love that word. It sort of reminds me of something weird. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, then the word has to change. Because if not, if you argue for that word or that paragraph or even that plot point, and the other person's not 100% convinced, then it will never be both of your books. It will be, Mm. you know, there will always be that sort of little black hole in it. Um, So we make a a rule that we have to, you know, we have to agree. And so if one of us comes up with like, oh, I don't love this sentence, or I don't love this word, or, or whatever, then we work together to fix it until both of us like until both of us like it. So that's kind of been a really, it's, I mean, it's a different process for when you write by yourself, you know, you're yeah. just like, I like it. So it's cute. It's going to stay. Right. Um, so it's been a, like an interesting process and in like, again, letting go, uh, letting go of control and uh, making sure that, you know, the reason we collaborated is because we want both of our brains in it and not just 
one of our brains and the other brain going, oh, okay, mm. <laughs> that sounds good. So I really, I really like that rule. <laughs> it sounds like a really healthy way to engage and create dialogue without shutting each other down. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that's not something everybody creates. And does it, is it, is it like a, would you say everything's 50 50 in terms of the collaboration or is there like somebody who's kind of managing the big picture of that? Um, yeah, no, it's not, it's, it's definitely not 50 50 in terms of the actual writing. So um, it, I do most of the, like, so we plot, we, we brainstorm together mm-hmm. and um, we come up with outlines together. Um, and then I've been taking most of the first drafts. Um, Joanne is really, really great at very kind of poetic language and making things beautiful and describing scenery with just scenery and, and objects. And they, like, she's really good with descriptive text. Mm. Uh, my strength is dialogue and pacing. So I will usually kind of frame the scenes or the chapters. Like I'll get the pacing and the framing down, but I leave these giant like gaps for her to fill in. Mm. So like my first draft, you know, won't make any sense, but to her, it's fine. Like I will kind of start the scene. I'll have some dialogue and then I'll be like, you know, they, they walk into the castle and then it's like describe castle is like in brackets. Um, and then she'll kind of come in behind me and sort of fill those things in and then also edit my writing. Um, so that's been our, that's been our process that it works and it works really well. That's cool. And you probably get a pretty cool first clean first draft too, coming at it that way. Well, you would think the the second book in the trilogy was pretty tough. We ended up rewriting it many times Mm -hmm. and we had to do some really um, thorough revisions. That one was a bit of a, that one was a bit of a process. It was complicated and challenging. The first book was a little bit more smooth um, and we're gearing up now to start the third book. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to, again, like learn from our process and evolve and make sure that we're, you know, we're kind of taking into account everything we know works and doesn't work so that, you know, it's, it's a never ending evolution <laughs> of your process. Yeah. That's great. And so is there anything that you, you're open to sharing about what you learned from that last book? As yes. Far as the struggle. Yes. So, um, and then this is something I'm learning about my process in general, but um, so I've discovered that the smoothest books that I've ever written are ones that I actually wrote very in-depth synopses for up up front before mm. I started writing. Mm-hmm. And the reason I did those was because I would, sometimes you sell a book on a synopsis and not a finished manuscript. So I often sell books based on a synopsis. Mm. Um, so when we sold the trilogy, uh, we sold, we sold it on, there was a hundred pages written of the first book. And then we had like a 50 page synopsis and it was, I mean, beat by beat and it not, and not an outline, like actual, paragraphs of summary um and then for the second and third book in in the proposal we had like i don't know a page each um which ended up getting completely changed so when we started the second book we did not start with like a 50 page synopsis we started with just some rough ideas and we just sort of went for it and we ended up doing a lot of that discovery work in the writing versus mm. when we wrote the 50 page synopsis for the first book, a lot of that discovery work was done in the synopsis. That doesn't mean that you're, it, you know, it's like word for word synopsis to, to manuscript. Like there were changes, but a lot of that sort of complicated plotting um, 
we discovered things did, that didn't work in the process mm. of writing the synopses versus mm. in book two, it was the pr- in, during the process of actually writing. And it's a lot easier to rewrite a synopsis than it is to write, rewrite, you know, a huge book. Um, so since discovering that, I'm, I also discovered that some of the other books that were the smoothest for me to write, meaning they required the, the least amount of revision work, um, were books that I sold on really um, in-depth synopses. Hmm. So I think my brain just works in a way that I can, I can, I work out a lot of the kinks when I write synopses. Um, so that's what I've attempted to do with this next book I'm working on now is like, you know, when I, when I, I was telling you, I struggled with the first 30 pages mm-hmm. and it was that struggle. Where I realized I sold this book on a, like, I pretty much sold this book on a sentence, <laughs> mm-hmm. like a log line. Yeah. Um, and then I was like, I'm just going to, you know, I have, a, I have an outline. I'm just going to start. I kind of know where it's going to go. I'm going to start. And then I was struggling to start. And that's when I backed up and I wrote the 50 page synopsis. It's actually more like 40. And now I'm actually starting. I started over and it's going a lot more smoothly. So, you know, we'll see. That's my new theory, but you never know. That's, that's a cool insight. And I have this tangential curiosity um, because, you know, a lot of listeners are maybe independently self-publishing or they're, pitching to trad pub Uh and like what is it that's in your 50 page synopsis that's selling your idea versus that log line like what are what do you think you're like who are you who are you whose need are you satisfying there and what are they getting out of it and what are you getting out of it well I always thought that I was convincing the publisher that I had a full idea like I always thought, oh, I better, you know, make this synopsis like really, I recently discovered that I write very long synopsis. <laughs> like a, a lot of other traditionally published authors I've talked to who also sell on a synopsis. Um, they, they're like, no, mine are like three pages long. And I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> um, but I, so I always thought like, oh, I have to convince the publisher that I have it all figured out. And that was sort of my, my old mindset. Um, mm. But I realized recently it was, no, I needed to discover the story for myself um, to make sure that I, I understood it. And then, and then, then I start writing. Um, and of course things change. Like I, I, th- I tell people, if you're a plotter, like the kind of person who likes to plot in advance versus a pantser who writes by the seat of their pants, like mm-hmm. pantsers just sort of get an idea and go with it. I'm yeah. definitely a plotter. But I tell plotters, like, one of the kisses of death of plotting is that outline because you feel like you cannot stray from it and you have to let yourself stray from it. Like, otherwise, because again, like the person who wrote that outline or that synopsis did not necessarily know what some of the problems were going to appear as they wrote it. Mm. Um, So you have to trust in the process and you have to let yourself change so you've um, never had anybody go hey i read you know i approved your your book deal on this 50 page synopsis and <laughs> and it's you, changed you know and it's changed this isn't what you gave me no i've never had that happen um normally i mean i i, I some people might have had that happen I, I i can't speak for everyone um usually if something changes it's not a huge thing it's sort of smaller details but um and usually it's because something was not working. And I've never actually had a publisher say like, wait a minute, in the synopsis, it was this way. Um, because hopefully the publisher, by the time you give them the book, you know, 
many, many months later. Mm. Um, hopefully they're reading the book for what it is and not trying to compare it like beat by beat to the synopses. I think that would only happen if for some reason you, you turned in something and it was so different and the publisher didn't like it. Right. And then maybe they might go back and go, wait, wait a minute. I didn't, I don't remember this part that I didn't like being in what I bought. Right. Um, like, like maybe the character is different, the genre or mood. Yeah, there's, yeah, exactly. The tone or there's some sort of plot twist that wasn't in the synopses. I think most most editors know that things change when you write them mm. and they expect that. So you pitch a lot, you pitch your ideas. Like how like in terms of mindset and maybe confidence, how do you know what your ideas are worth? Oh. Um that's a good question. I think I would never pitch an idea unless I was excited about it. Mm. So, you know, I don't, I don't ever want to write a book that I'm not a hundred percent, hundred and ten percent excited to write because, you know, books are really hard to write. And mm. like, like we had been talking about, you reach those points where you're like, this sucks and I suck and I'm never going to write again. And this is never going to work. And, and you have to, you have to love the idea enough to get over that. And if you don't love the idea from the start, that's going to be really hard for you to get around those, those humps. Mm. Um, so I think that's where I start is I start with ideas that I'm excited about. Right. And I guess the converse point of that, right. Cause there's a lot of maybe, I don't know if it's FOMO mentality or not. That's maybe addressed there. Like, am I writing the right thing? Is this actually going to move my career forward? Uh-huh. You know, am I a failure if this idea doesn't work? Um, and, but there's the other half of that, which is I'm engaging with gatekeepers. And if I don't value my own ideas, right. Mm-hmm then I may never write these things unless the gatekeeper approves. True. Or I may not ask for what I need in my contract to make mm-hmm. this work for me. So it, it sounds like you're a ways into this career. So I'm wondering if you have any like advice for people like on how to find that balance of making this work for them. Yeah. I mean, oh, oh. I think a piece of advice you'll hear a lot is don't write to trends. Mm. So don't write to what you think the market is looking for um, because that's a really slippery slope. Mm. And um, the market changes all the time. So, and basically what you're seeing on the bookshelf today, like with the new releases that are coming out this week were bought Mm. like two years ago. So the, chances are the publisher's not buying that type of book anymore. So, and even if you look at, you know, if you read publishersmarketplace.com, we'll list out every book that sells, you know, every sales announcement. So even if you read those sales announcements, you see, okay, right now it seems like everyone's buying, you know, um, teenage mysteries. Not That's not really happening right now, but mm. that I know of. Um, but maybe you, maybe you see sort of a trend. If you're like, I'm going to write a teenage mystery. Okay, fine. How long is it going to take you to write that? Mm. By the time you write it, are they still going to be buying them? So right. I, I, I just tell people like, try not to write to trends. Um, so when you, when you're like, well, I know dystopian is really hot. Like I'm going to write one of those, write the book that you want to write. And I think like the book that you want to write and the book that really excites you is going to be worth so much more than the book that's like right on trend. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of it coming out well. 
Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I think we all, I think we all worry like, oh, this isn't the right book, but th- that's just more fear. I mean, it's the same fear that, that makes you stop writing in the middle because you don't think it's good enough. It's just, mm. it's just fear. Like fear is this really annoying creature that doesn't want you to succeed. And it, so it looks for all sorts of excuses of why you won't. And you can pick any one of those as an excuse and go, yeah, that's it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it. Um, but then the monster wins. So you just have to, you know, keep trudging through all of those excuses and fear. Yeah. That's, that sounds huge. And like, how do I know to like trust that, Hey, well, I like this idea and there's gotta be other people out there who are going to like this or connect with it. So there's no way to know. There's, uh, you know, there's no way to know if your book's going to sell when you start it. And so I tell people, don't write the book to sell it. Mm. Write the book because you want to write it. And mm. again, it's going to be a better book that way. Um, of course, like everyone, you know, everyone who wants to sell a book is hoping when they start it that that it's going to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a couple things to keep in mind there. Not everyone sells their first book. I didn't. Like my first book never got sold. My second book got sold. Um, and that was after I rewrote it 20 times. Um, so not every, I have friends who didn't sell their first 10 books. Um, but every book you write, you get better. That trust builds, you know, it gets not easier, but it gets easier to continue, um, through the, the hard times and you just become more and more confident in your abilities. You learn something new with every book. So everyone sort of got a set amount of like, if you're the kind of, if you're the kind of writer who is, wants to sell a book to a traditional publisher. Not everybody does, but mm. if that's your goal, then you you have this sort of like number of books in you that it's going to require before you sell that book. And you have no idea what that number is until it's a done. And you just kind of have to trust that if this is meant to be, like you're going to write that book that's going to line up and everything, the stars will align and, every, and people are going to want it. Cool. Um, but there's another thing to note is that not there's, not every book is right for this time. Like a lot of people, they'll write like a phenomenal book and the publishing industry will respond with, well, we just, you know, there was just a really big book similar to that that tanked. So mm-hmm. we're not buying that kind of book anymore. Mm. And it's like devastating, right? Because you're like, but everybody yeah. loves it. But that book could sell in two years or three years or five years once everyone forgot about the other you know, flop. So um, you just have to keep writing. And then, you know, if that, if that book that gets got rejected is meant to come back around, it will. Mm. And I guess to flip it on, on its head a little bit. So let's say I am successful by money standards, by writing to market. And I realized that I'm not writing the books I want to write. And I'm scared that I'm going to be throwing my career away if I write the books that I want to write. Mm-hmm. Do you have any like thoughts about that? Um, I would just say write under a pseudonym. Like if you're really afraid of, if you're really afraid of writing maybe commercial fiction because you want to write literary fiction and you don't want to ruin your chances, mm. like whatever, whatever kind of book you really want to write, like save your, the name that you want on those books for those books and write the, re- the other books. Like if you want to write commercial and, you know, get mm. yourself in the door and start making money, Um, you can always write under a different name and you can always change names. Um, so, you know, I always tell myself like, well, if like nobody will buy my books, I will just reinvent myself because I know I can continue to write books. Like I know I, I can write a book. Um, you know, but sometimes like, like you, 
you were kind of implying, like sometimes the name gets tainted. Yeah. Um, so I would just say like, write those books that you're not sure about under a pseudonym and see what happens. Right. So it sounds like there doesn't have to be a dead end. It can just be a maze and you just turn around and. and exactly. You just, and, yeah. And so I think one of the last questions I really wanted to ask you is like, how do you find balance, like juggling multiple projects, doing all this other work, having a family? Like, how, does, well, how do you make that work sustainably? That's something that I am not an expert at, um, admittedly. I, so I don't have any kids. It's me and my husband and we have dogs. Mm. Um, and so I don't really have any demands outside of my work mm. um, pulling me out. If I did, I probably, it would, my life would probably look very different. Um, so I have nothing kind of stopping me from going, there's more hours in the day. Keep working. <laughs> mm. um, and it, you know, sometimes I get burnt out and I have, then I have to kind of like take a week off where I just like sit and stare at the wall. Um, but you give yourself permission to do that. Yeah. I mean, I know when I need it. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not the best at it. Like I take on, I, I'm, I'm known for taking on too many projects at once and then kind of, you know, getting super stressed about it. Um, mm. There's a part of me that thrives on that. And there's a part of me that's like, you know, I should really learn how to do one book at a time and like actually take the other part of my time to do other things. Like I, you know, I do work out very regularly. Um, I try to take walks, you know, I meditate. I, mm. I do a lot of things that help me maintain balance in my head. Mm. Um, but in terms of like balancing work and not work, like I don't have a lot of not work. Yeah. So it ends up being a lot. Of, I just work a lot, but I... Yeah. Yeah. I, but I love what I do. So it's not, I'm not like grudgingly doing it. Yeah, um, it almost sounds like it's not a problem, but what you, what you're doing is you're, you, you have found these tools that are helping you to keep going and doing it. Yeah. And, and I yeah, guess, I it, so. oh, yeah, is there anything like you're doing that's just not fun? Like you're, would you get rid you know, like, I think that's the only time it comes up as an issue is when people have building resentment, like, hey, yeah. my health is declining, I'm not right. having fun, I'm stressed all the time, my relationships are suffering. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that I'm very, I'm very cautious of is taking care of myself. So hmm. I guess that would be the other thing in my life. Like I, you know, we eat well, we cook our own meals, like, um, and we work out and we, you know, we like the, the meditation and all that. So I'm, I'm pretty aware of that, like to make sure, because, you know, for one, when you eat badly and you don't take care of yourself and you're not meditating, like your work suffers because yeah. your brain suffers. Um, right. So a, a lot of it started out as just like ways to become more productive. It's like, well, I found that if I meditate for 10 minutes every morning, I actually write better. Mm. So it, it started out as more just like, how do I get more out of my work? Um, and now it's become sort of more of a necessity because if I don't do those things, um, if I go for more than three days without going, without working out, like I feel it. And, mm -hmm. and then I'm like, no, no, I can't, I can't do that. Yeah. So really you sounds like are a foundation of your writing business, right? Like your, your well-being is a necessary piece of what you're doing. Right. Right. I mean, I once heard a story about a model that had her legs insured for like a million dollars because like, you know, she had these really great legs and I always thought that was really funny. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, but then I thought, well, but if she breaks her leg or if something happens to her leg, like she's out of a job. Yeah. And same with me. Like if, if, you know, if I break down, my body breaks down, I'm out of a job. So yeah, that's, it. Have, yeah. I have to take care of my, in my instrument, which is my, cool. myself, my brain. Well, like, so you're writing fiction and, and, and you're writing that under your name, Jessica Brody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then for like authors and screenwriters who may be looking for mentorship or coaching, like what kind of other courses you have coming up or, you know, coaching packages, like how does that work for you? Yeah. Um, well, I don't do coaching, but I have, um, I have a ton of online courses. So mm-hmm. uh, you can go to jessicabrody.com slash writing mastery. That's my um, sort of writer's portal. Mm-hmm. And um, there you'll find my courses, my nonfiction book, singular, hopefully plural someday. Mm-hmm. Um, my, I have a blog that I put free writing tips up. I have a YouTube channel where I do free videos, uh, writing mastery videos. Um, but the courses are sort of things that they're sort of like things that I get asked a lot. So I designed these courses, um, to be completely on demand, self-paced. So basically you just, you enroll and you take them as many times as you want. You take them at any pace you want. Mm. Um, and, uh, so I have a course on, you know, how to write a novel. Um, I have a course on productivity hacks. So how to get the most out of your, your work day Mm. or the hours that you have to work. I have a course on how to sell your novel to a major publisher, like step-by-step. Um, I have a course on conquering writer's block. Like, so I have sort of all the things that people ask me about, like, how do you write so many books and how do you get rid of writer's block and how do you write a novel? I'm like, well, I'll I'll just develop a course and it'll be easier and I'll share it with everyone. So, um, yeah, you can check those out. Cool. And I'll be sure to include a link to that. Um, yeah. Thank you. Well, Jessica, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. It's been great. These, these were really great questions. You asked a lot of questions that I've never been asked before, which is always Yay. refreshing and rare. <laughs> that's that's always my goal, Jessica. Yeah, and, no, and it's great. It makes me think. <laughs> awesome. Use the brain. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover the Fearless Storyteller podcast.